Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Courtney, a white mom from Los Angeles. This is part three of our five-part series, Between We and They, a school integration story. If you haven't listened to the first two, go back and do that now. When we left Beth, it was October, and she was feeling pretty good about her decision to move her kids from the privileged school in her neighborhood to a poorly rated school miles away. She felt that it was the right choice, but it was also bringing up a lot of feelings for her and making her look at her own privilege and the narrative she had told herself about good and bad schools. She was also struggling to understand her feeling that this school wasn't actually as bad as she expected. In fact, we didn't even catch up with Beth until June of 2019, right after her daughters finished their first year at the new school. I tried to record with Beth throughout the spring, but she would continually say that everything was fine and there's nothing to report. She wasn't consumed with worry or dread about how things were going. They were having a good, maybe unremarkable year. Yeah, I feel like the year has generally been, for the most part, uneventful. So I don't know. I just kind of wonder if it's, it's, if it's a useful conversation for people to listen to. And so we waited until the school year had come to a close. And then we asked Beth to reflect on how this year had been. I mean, this, this year has been a really an incredible transformative year for me personally. I know this is about the girls, but for me personally, it's just, it's hard for me to even reach back a year to think about where I was. One place where Beth was, was feeling heartbroken about the PTA. I've participated. I've gone to as many meetings as I can. I volunteer and bring stuff when I can. There aren't too many parents who are willing or able to help out. So if I can help up, like, you know, help blow up balloons for the last day of school, like I'll do it, you know, that kind of thing. I really, really tried to keep a low profile at the school in general, but I also wanted to help out if the PTA wanted help. At the beginning of the year, the PTA's goal was to celebrate the fifth graders with a field trip to a water park. And well, they did it. We did. Yes, we did. The PTA raised money. I helped organize it. You know, I just made the phone calls and stuff. But yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the things that the PTA president wanted to do for the kids. And I appreciated that, you know, like she just really wanted, I mean, she didn't even have a graduating kid, a fifth grader. She really wanted to do that for the kids, so... It was a victory, a small victory, at least compared to the financial victories her old school racked up, but it was a victory nonetheless. And through it, Beth came to think differently about what a good parent organization could be. Committed and caring parents who were working on behalf of the kids, building relationships with each other in the process, that has value far beyond a balance sheet. And coming to see that value helped Beth move past her pity and the disconnect it was causing and I do feel more connected to the PTA in general and the people there. It's, it's a really a fledgling organization and fledgling relationships. And so, yeah, but I'm part of that. Beth feels part of the PTA, as fledgling as it is. They are becoming her we. And what did that do to the pity she had felt? I did, I, I did feel pity. And I don't, I don't like to talk about my experiences at the new school with the people from the old school. But I did share a little bit about, you know, our, our PTA doesn't have more than $30 right now. That was the beginning of the school year. And she gave me this, this woman gave me this look of just profound pity. And I just saw it on her face and I was so turned off. And I thought, oh, that's what pity is. It was really, it was eye-opening to me. And it was very disgusting. And I haven't felt pity since then. You know, I think that her, the, the woman's expression on her face, 
it just impacted me so much and I just saw like and how really repulsive it felt to be on the receiving end of that like wait a minute like we we do not need your pity you know if you want to donate money great but don't do it out of pity and I I know like it was just that moment you know as I was telling her that I was feeling pity and so then to see it reflected back at me I was just like ugh <laughs> is that what I look like <laughs> it did kind of feel like a spell was broken being on the receiving end of this pity helped Beth see all of the implications of pity, the source of it, and the power it can hide. I mean, I, th- I think it felt so repulsive to me because all the look conveyed to me was deficit. It was like they, she saw nothing else but bad and tragic and deprived. And that's great. You think that's, you know, oh, poor school. But enough of that. What are you going to do about it? Because... Your inaction and your pity is maintaining this uh, vast discrepancy. If we're just talking about PTA funds, you are maintaining that with your pity and your inaction and your indifference. Is it? I mean, it really is indifference. I know you're going to put on a face of pity, but really, it's just indifference. The other big piece of this is this is your system. This is our system that we that we created, that we set up to favor us, that works perfectly well for us. We designed it this way, we want it this way, and we want to keep it this way. So when you're looking at me with, with pity, I know that you're not seeing your piece in this. I know that you're not seeing how you are participating in this system that is so unjust. Coming to be a part of the new school community, the pity she felt became something else, something other than dismay at injustice and anger at disparities. It became instead caring about people, real, actual people, knowing that there are structural systems that maintain advantage for some at the expense of others is one thing, and being in community with those who are affected by it, that's something else. One of the last weeks of school, you know, I have a third grade mentee, so I'm in her classroom working with the classroom. And then I have lunch with her. And lately it's been, she wants me to just sit in the cafeteria with, you know, with her class. So I'm, you know, getting to know these kids more and more and more. So I'm just like the only adult at their table. So at this last lunch, three of these third graders told me that they're not coming back next year. And I just, my heart just sank. And whatever, they weren't able to really tell me like the details and where they're going and whatever. But at the end of the lunch, like I really felt very heavy and really kind of heartbroken that I wasn't going to see these kids next year. So at the end, I end of lunch, I just kind of called my men- mentee over and I and I sat down, you know, so now she's a little bit taller than me. And I just like really gave her this heartfelt goodbye and like I really thought I was going to follow you through high school and just and now I'm going to miss you and all this stuff like and I felt like my tears coming. <laughs> and she was super sweet like this girl is like she's got such a hard exterior and And there have only been a few times when I've seen, like, this tiny little girl self, like, come out. And so I saw her in that moment, and she just gave me the biggest hug, and she squeezed me, and it was just so sweet. And I just, you know, after that, like, I I went home and cried. But this doesn't feel like pity. It feels like a real loss. I mean, I don't want to overstate my role, but I feel like we had a relationship, you know, my mentee and I and some of these other kids. And it grew throughout the year. And it, I, I really don't want to sound like I, I would, you know, I, I want a cookie for having lunch with these kids. 
I, I can't say if my presence was transformative or profound for them. Um, but but I, it, it actually was for me. And now they may not be there next year. So I just feel really sad about that. Which is, I think, hopefully is different than pity, which is what I was feeling. Pity is driven by platitudes, a detached sadness about someone else's misfortunes that might prompt one to maybe donate money. Empathy, on the other hand, is something much more profound, a shared experience, a giving of oneself, a deep emotional engagement with people, not a feeling about them. This journey from pity to empathy was built on relationships. They weren't always easy to create, and they continue to be a work in progress. But through that process, Beth has started to think of the people at the new school, the kids, the parents, as a we. There's power in knowing and caring about people as individuals. Beth's journey toward anti-racism, the learning she's doing, has led her to a deeper understanding of all the ways her privilege is unearned, all the ways she has benefited from the structures in our society. She had expected this privileged part of her identity to be a focal point through the change in schools, but what she didn't expect. It brought my, my ethnic identity front and center every single day, in addition to my privilege, but my ethnic identity more, um, because I started off this process as, you know, a privileged person, which we are. And I, I say that we are privileged because I, I am half white. And, you know, being, being Asian is different from being black or brown in our, in our society. Um, I mean, it's different from being white and privileged, but the privilege still feels real. And I know it's unearned. So here, I just, I just kind of went with it. Like I was a privileged person and I kind of put my identity, you know, to the side, but it just became, a thing. It became a thing for me this year. And I, it just took, it took me aback. I really wasn't expecting that. I mean, I think throughout my life, I've had periods in my life where my ethnic identity and being mixed has been like the thing, you know, it's been a big part of my consciousness and my reading and my, you know, everything. And so I kind of, I just, I kind of thought I was done with that, (laughs) but I'm not. (laughs) So I've just been struggling to find my place, you know, I don't really feel like I fit at the former elementary school and that parent crowd. And I don't really feel like I fit in the present elementary school and that crowd. And it's okay. Um, I'm accustomed to being in this in-between. So in some ways, I feel like being accustomed to the in-betweenness has made this process so much easier than I think somebody who's monoracial. There's just a familiarity there, you know, like a familiarity with the in-betweenness, with the discomfort. It's almost like the comfort in that discomfort, you know, like, oh, I've been here before. Like, I, know, I know this. For an integrating parent, and especially those who have been mostly around people who are just like us, integrating can feel really discombobulating, awkward, disquieting. Here, though, Beth sees her mixed-race experience as an asset. Her lifelong sense of always being in between has given her practice in being uncomfortable. And that's made this experience easier. But easier isn't the same as easy. Yeah, I just feel like I'm, now I'm constantly thinking about my ethnicity and how, how do I identify again? And, you know, am, am I white? Do people read me as white? You know, just, just all this. It's just kind of thrown me into this place. 
and it can be kind of lonely. It's also been kind of isolating. I feel like I've lost friends and I haven't acquired friends. So I feel like I'm very, I feel very isolated. There's also something missing, which is sort of like this personal connection, which I don't, you know, that takes time. But all this to say, like this kind of in-between space, you know, has also been very uh, lonely. And I'm okay with it. I think, I think it takes time. I think it would take time, and it did take time, in my own neighborhood school. Maybe making connections at her new school will take even more time, but for now, she's in an in-between space, not fully fitting into her new school, at least not yet, but feeling further and further removed from her old school community. And while she expected her privilege to create some distance in her new school, she's surprised by the way that her racial identity created distance with friends and neighbors from the old one. I'm not, I'm, I've come to the conclusion that the people around me in my neighborhood, either they never have or no longer see me as white. They, I mean, I live in their neighborhood, so they must see me as privileged like them, but I think that they don't see me as white. I, I guess I kind of hoped that my decision would open up conversations among my friends at the former school. And I think that my decision really shut down any potential for conversation around this. I, I, maybe that's not the right way to say it, but I just feel like I've just experienced a deafening silence around this. So and I, I, don't, I honestly don't know what to make of it. I was kind of hoping in the beginning that people would see me like, like them. I'm very much like them because really I, I am in many, many ways. And so I just kind of thought, like, through this decision and through my, you know, my research and my exploration, and they might be curious and just want to hear about it. But I was really, I was wrong. I was very wrong. I'm guessing that me being mixed might be a way that people can other me. And therefore, like, I don't have to worry about what she's doing because I don't know. I can't, I can't really articulate it. But I just feel like my half Asianness is a way in which I I can be cast out, set aside, and othered. You know, like I'm not with them anymore. I'm I'm kind of on the other team. That has been part of my process as well, is just kind of experiencing and handling the silence around my decision. And so this is, so what I struggle with is like, why do I feel so hurt then? Why do I feel so, I mean, this is a little bit strong, but abandoned and dropped, you know, like how can, how, I, I, why do I feel like shocked? Like, how can you turn away from me? The reason why I feel so hurt by, by the silence is because it feels like they're shunning me because of my identity. And I know that sounds a little crazy, but how do I articulate? It just feels like there's a, the shunning feels not just because I made a decision that they don't like. It feels a little bit like because we're not white, because my family's not white. That's why they're going to shut me out. You know, I'll, I will never know that because no one would ever admit to that. But I just wonder. Beth hadn't really expected her friends to join her in changing schools but also wasn't expecting that teams had to be picked and that her choice would put her on another one. Using silence, she feels like her friends and neighbors are protecting their privilege by ignoring its existence. 
While she feels the sting of being dropped and the distance created by the deafening silence, she holds out hope that maybe she's planting seeds that will just take time to germinate. And in the meantime, she's finding herself wanting that distance too. It is somewhat mutual. I certainly have stepped out. I have different values and a different focus right now. So it's been a, a, a little bit sad. And, and still, I say that, and then I can't help but say that I, you know, even running into people this summer, a couple of mothers got into a conversation with them. One of them I felt like I was close to at one point, and the conversation just centered around middle school. Now, my daughter's going into fifth grade. She needs to start thinking about middle school and applying to magnet programs, you know, which I kind of fundamentally disagree with. But the conversation was just, it just focused so much on the magnet programs and this application and that application. And then she turns to me like, where, where's your daughter going to go? I said, I don't know. And that was it. Like, I really don't, I can't engage in that conversation. I can't engage in the minutia of like applications. It feels so meaningless to me. So it's this hyper focus on my own kid. I just can't do it. And I can't, I kind of have no patience for it. These conversations focused on the minutia, the details and the ways to get more things for their kids without focusing on the things that Beth thinks are really important. But talking about these things with her neighbors is difficult, not only for Beth, who is trying to understand the history and the impacts of race in America, but also for her neighbors, who seem to be ignoring it. I think that there's a real inadequacy when it comes to talking about race. That's just kind of across the board. And I'm, I don't want to get on my high horse about that. I, I'm learning every single day, and I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to be better about the converse, that conversation around race and ethnicity and class. And, but... I kind of feel like the people around me in my neighborhood, in the former school community, they're very invested in maintaining what they have. And I think that my decision, in some strange way, maybe threatens that. You know, I represent sort of a crack in their bubble, and I'm out. You know, now that I'm out, like, they got to quickly repair the crack, you know, so that I can be on the other side and they can maintain their safe, comfortable bubble. And it's, you know, I use that word, I, don't, I, I use that word deliberately because I feel like I've heard parents around me talk about the bubble that they really like. Calling out racism and pointing out the structures that support it is socially dangerous work. There's often a social cost to challenging the systems that advantage the people with whom we're talking. Beth hears the deafening silence is a way that her neighbors can ignore the crack that she's put in their bubble. But also, Beth feels that being half Asian gives the neighbors a simpler way to ignore it, a way to dismiss it, discount it. As isolating as it feels to be on the outside with her neighbors and to not yet feel a part of the new school community, Beth is also finding something valuable in the transition. Lonely as it may be, there are also aspects to this that feel freeing. And once again, Beth is surprised. Well, it is liberating to, to just be in an environment that doesn't feel, doesn't feel so stifling. And the reason why it feels stifling is because it just, there feels like one way to be, and that is the white normed upper middle class way of being a parent. And I'm not that kind of parent. And so that feels very significant to me. So it does, that feels very liberating, but also, I mean, it's also part of, you know, part of the school culture, you know, music is, is a big part of the present school culture. You walk in and there's music playing like loud music playing in the lobby. And that's how the principal wants it to be. Like there's just music all the time. 
and the kids perform and there's a step team. And it, I mean, it's, it's so small, but it feels significant. There's just so many different ways to be. So it does feel liberating. The former school would never have loud music playing in the hallway. The new school is not a buzz with parent volunteers and fundraising pressures. But it's more than just swapping one school culture for another. It's also parenting itself. I, I just, I had honestly had no idea how much of a burden it was for me personally to be at the former school. It just didn't feel right. And I, it was a feeling that I couldn't really articulate beyond I'm not a helicopter parent like most other parents here. And I don't want to be volunteering at the school for every darn event or be making cute little cupcakes for this event or that event. Like, you know, it, they're silly examples, but it was, it represented the, the culture of the school and the culture of the parenting style. You know, this kind of Pinterest parenting style at the school. And I, I know it's not unique to that school. I just had no idea how much of a burden it felt to me. Like, it, it's not the way I do it. It's just not the way I do. And I don't want my girls to think like I'm going to be at their beck and call and in service to them all the time. Uh, I had no idea how much of a burden it was until I left it. And now, this past year, on the two occasions that we went back to the former school for their events, I got so anxious. The second time we went, you know, I'm kind of stomping around, like, I just don't want to go. And this is the last time we're going to this event. Like, I'm very anxious about being around these parents again. Like, are they going to talk to me about, like, the weather? Because like, I don't want to talk about that, you know? I'd rather talk about real stuff, you know? So just letting that go is just so liberating. And I'm, li I'm living the way, like, it just, it aligns with the way I want to parent. And I kind of hoped that like this would be good. I really didn't know how great it was going to be, but I was just really kind of crossing my fingers. And I'm not a religious person, but I was, you know, really kind of, it was really kind of a leap of faith. Beth grew to appreciate the ways in which her new school provided the freedom to parent how she felt was best, to let go of the competition and the pressures of the old school, that there were many ways to parent rather than just one. This freedom gave her the space to focus more on being anti-racist. And through that, she found even more liberation. It's hard for me to even articulate the significance of this, but this process has been so profound for me. And when I started this whole, whole anti-racist process, deconstruction, whatever you want to call it, it felt like so scary and really heavy. And a year into it, because I feel like I've really been actively like trying to be anti-racist, like really trying. I'm not saying I'm succeeding, but I'm actively trying like every single day. And, you know, a year into it, I feel like there's something very liberating about this. Like, I no longer feel so heavy with like, God, did I just say, did I just think something that's so deeply racist? I do. I do. I have those thoughts. And like, oh, wait a minute. This is why I have it. Like, this is what it means. This is how it manifests. Like, this is what it looks like. I can pick it apart. I can like, in, in picking it apart, it's like I, I sort of remove it from me and I look at it. I hold it. It's still mine. And then through the deconstruction, through the analysis, like it's liberating, you know, like it's still it's still part of me. I'm still holding it, but it's there's something liberating about it because it's not like me. I don't know. It's a little bit hard for me to explain, but I just feel like, like I know it feels very stifling and heavy and oh, my God, very anxiety provoking. But let it be for a little bit. And I, I hope through the process, like it can be very expanding and almost liberating. While she has studied and read and learned and took a family trip to bear witness at the Legacy Museum in Whitney Plantation, Beth feels like the decision to change schools was crucial, a necessary part of her journey toward anti-racism. 
Like, I, I don't know how one could go through that process or be in that process and thinking about, you know, acting in a way that's anti-racist and still be in that sort of monoracial, privileged community. It's, it's a very, it's a sliver of life, a sliver of society. I don't, I don't know how you can do that. While she still lives in the same house, in the same largely white privileged neighborhood, Beth's experiences across town are redefining where and how she belongs. A growing, deepening distance from her neighbors and a slow building of trust and relationships in her kids' new school is changing how she thinks about they and we. And this change is evident not only in her ability to move from pity to empathy, but also how she feels about her own progress toward anti-racism. Beth knew that she wanted maybe even needed her family out of the bubble and the constrictions of those narrow ways of being. And by trying to first do no harm, trying to listen deeply, participate humbly, trying to work toward anti-racism, Beth now has the space to find perspective and maybe even liberation. But school is for the kids after all. So join us next time when we learn about how the year went for Beth's daughters. From academics to playdates to behavior issues, the girls have also gone through a major transition and become part of a new school community. We'll hear from them directly about how it went. Music in this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. If you're enjoying the series, please share it with your friends. Leave us a rating or review. It really does help people find the podcast. And support this all-volunteer effort by donating at integratedschools.org. Thanks to Beth for sharing her journey. We're grateful to be in this with you all as we try to know better and do better.